I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this. Talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. You're listening to Muses and Stuff, the podcast that celebrates those who live, love, and breathe rock and roll. From the incredible groupies, girlfriends, and wives who went after what and who they wanted, to the journalists, photographers, and other behind-the-scenes characters who play such an important part in rock and roll history. We are your hosts, Shanti and Lynx. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Electrified Porcupine, bringing you the best in collectibles, movies, music, wrestling, gaming, and more. Check it out at electrifiedporcupine.com. We got a fabulous interview here. We actually have an episode all about Ann Moses that I presented recently, and now we had the pleasure of talking with her, and there was so much in the book and so much in the episode, and there was still so much left so it was great to be able to talk to her and cover some of those points. We talk about people like Bobby Sherman and David Cassidy. We talk a little bit about the monkeys and her early work with Rhythm and News, where she got to interview people like James Brown and, you know, saw like Ike and Tina. I was really excited to talk about, yeah, David Cassidy. That was my mom's like teen idol. And then we brought everything back full circle because Anne told us that people started Googling her and she didn't know that she was pretty big on the internet. And through the magic of the internet, she found us, we found her, and then we got to have an amazing 
conversation. So we also talk about Elvis. We're going to, Lynx and I are going to be watching the Elvis documentary tonight. And um, then the episode ends with a big reveal. So stay tuned to the very end. We hope you enjoy the show. Yeah, thank you, Anne. Thanks, Anne. We really appreciate it. And we can't wait to meet you in person someday. You are absolutely lovely. Trailblazer. It is a real honor um, to be speaking with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. This just, we're over the moon. This is what really makes us excited. Yeah. Well, me too, to tell you the truth. Uh, when I listened to your, I guess you'd call it a review of my book, it was like listening to Audible. It was like I had an audio book out because you told stories from the book and it was like I was listening to somebody else tell the story, but it was my story. Yeah, it was so much fun reading the book and you had so many amazing stories in there. It was like impossible to edit it down, but there's still like so many stories in there too. Like I left out like entire chapters, so there's plenty more for people to read about. And I hope uh, all our listeners have gone and got your book. I know a bunch of them have commented about how excited they were to read it. Well, I hope so. Uh, you know, I just want people to have a good time because uh, I had it was a fun time uh, living it. <laughs> yeah, it was so exciting. And everything in your life seems like so serendipitous. And it, it just seemed meant to be for you. It, that It's still that way to this day. Uh, things happen to me and I just kind of go... You know, and and I know it's not as simple as simple dumb luck. Um, there, there's a famous quote by um, Superman, um, which is uh, my Superman is Henry Cavill, mm. uh, cutie pie, mm. and uh, I mean he said something along the lines of, "I've had a lot of luck luck in my life, but those people that have a lot of luck, they've really worked hard for it." Or something along those lines it's like it isn't it isn't just free coming to you it's it's but yes things happening happening in a serendipitous way that's how I felt every time I'd put an incident down in the book and and like I say everything after that has been you know my reunion with the monkeys and when it finally came time to write the book and I started to think about those days. It was like, wow, you know, all that stuff really happened. That was something else. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It's like the opportunity comes to you, but it's up to you to make something of that opportunity. And you really did. You you nailed it. When did you decide it's time? It's time to write the book. Did you just start by, did it, the idea just hit you one day or had you been planning it for a while? I had not been planning it at all because once I left Tiger Beat in 1972, I was, you know, you're, I was really out of the Hollywood life. I not only moved away, but I, I just had nothing that kept me uh, tethered to Hollywood at all. And so every once in a great while, I'd, I'd, you know, we'd be, have friends over for dinner or something, and and it would come up in conversation, how I had who, who I had worked with and where I had worked, and they'd go, "Oh, that's really something. You should write a book." 
And it would be like, yeah, yeah, right. And But then um, the last job that I had, um, which I retired from a couple of years ago, uh, I was working in an orthodontic office. Um, that's one of the paths my life took um, after Tiger Beat. And, uh, but most of the, the women I worked with were millennials. And so, but, but still, they eventually heard about what I did back in the day. And they said, oh, please bring your pictures in. We want to see them. So I brought my picture book in of my five by sevens and eight by tens of the prints I had kept, you know, in a file for years and years and years. And they were looking at them and they recognized Elvis <laughs> and a couple of them recognized the monkeys, you know, probably from them being on Nickelodeon or something. And then some of them didn't know who the hell those people were uh, because they were that young. <laughs> and so, but like millennials, they, even while they were looking at the pictures, they started Googling me because they had never heard the name Ann Moses. I went by my married name. And and so they started Googling Ann Moses and Tiger Beat. And they said, look at this. You've got like 60 pages on Google. And I'm going, what? Because <laughs> I had not Googled myself. And it was it was a complete I was just bowled over. It was like, what? Are you kidding me? Here And then here was, you know, post after post. And I'm going, how did this happen? Yeah, you have your own fans now. I, it was just, it was, it was mind-blowing. So it was at that point that I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to do a little writing again and just start a blog? And, and so I just started my website at that point in time, it was it was called "I Used to Be Ann Moses," Aww. and and so I did a bunch of stories. They were just little vignettes, you know, about maybe the David Cassidy and his his dogs puppies and how we gave them away in a contest, or I it might be that when I read that. you know dining with dining with the stars so i told about times i went to dinner with eric clapton and had harry nelson over for dinner and and so i was just telling those stories you know on my blog and and i got some responses and then and then those started those stories started coming up when when if you would google you know and moses and harry nelson it would be like that my blog piece would come up and i would I was just, I was really floored, even my, though my husband was very involved in, in, in search engine optimization and computer programming. I mean, we, it just, I don't know if it hadn't dawned on us or what the deal was, but it was like, it was a, a real revelation. So it was in the course of doing that, that day that every, all the girls were Googling me on their, on their phones one of them said, oh, look at this girl. She wrote when she was 12, she wanted to be you. <laughs> and, and, I, and it turned out it was a, a blog post by a woman who um, is a, a book editor. She's a writer. And she had written one, her own book. She lived in, uh, and her name's Ann Wicker. And she ended up editing my book because I sent her an email saying, I can't believe I read your story about 
da- uh, Davy Jones passing and how you mentioned, you know, you wanted to be, be me when you were 12 years old. And so we we exchanged some emails and then I said, I've just, I've got to call her. And of course I called her and she lives in um, Charlotte, North Carolina. So she had this, you know, hilarious Southern accent. I mean, it's, it's, it's so funny to me because, you know, born and raised in California. Of course, we Californians don't think we have an accent. <laughs> and we're told we do, you know, that it's a California accent, I guess. But to us, it sounds normal. And then everybody else sounds unique. But we got to talking. And I, after a while, we just decided, hey, let's write this book. And I needed her help with uh, because I had never, you know, I had written, I might have taken a one sentence out of an interview with David Cassidy or Bobby Sherman or someone and made a three-page article out of it for Tiger Beat, but I had never written a 100,000-word book. So it was like, mm, maybe you can help me with the organization, and and that's what we did. We read through the book, made additions, corrections, and read through it again. And, um, you know, so over a span of five years, the wow. book got written. It sounds, <laughs> it's such a full circle experience as well. And, you know, one thing about those millennials and the girls who showed you originally is <laughs> we're really nostalgic for something that we never had. So, well, and it's, it's, it's such a cool thing to be nostalgic for, though. I mean, oh, totally. And we we were so lucky. <laughs> yeah, because we don't we we have almost so much option and there's so much out there. And yes. the, you know, pop stars and the the big musicians are so untouchable these days that mm-hmm. um, it's just not that like little bit of that that same sense of like closeness that you could have gotten and the like the closest I'm a huge fan of Harry Nilsson and I Mm -hmm. it was cool because when I was living in Halifax Nova Scotia there was a Harry Nilsson tribute night where all of the really great musicians in Nova Scotia got to play a song in honor of Harry Nilsson and his son was there so it was cool that I got to meet his son so like that generation is still kind of around but Mm. And now we're sort of chasing the people that were there that were doing the interviews and taking the photos. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it's really like that's a, that's, that's where we are. Yeah, that's like what's fascinating to us. Like, we want to we want to be in your shoes back then. Well, and it, you know, it at the time, it it just seemed like the right thing to be doing and the the most fun thing to be doing. But. The one thing we couldn't conceive of at the time is that it would be appreciated in in the the teen two thousands. Yeah. I mean that that was just I I would have saved everything. <laughs> well, we read the stories over and over of the like the Hammer of the Gods and you know the stuff that um, you know the Rolling Stones themselves has written. But like we don't really mm-hmm. care about that. We want the <laughs> little bit of distance and the little bit, and especially the like the female and the woman perspective. So that's those are the stories that we're after. And yeah, we kind of like made it into a book club. But now that we're actually speaking with you. Instead of just doing the book, this is mm-hmm. next level for us. So we're so excited. Oh, awesome. <laughs> right. 
So we want to take it way back. Let's go back to the Tiger Beat years or the pre-Tiger Beat. Mm -hmm. uh, we know Elvis was a, a big love of yours. Uh, who else? Who were your tween idols? Who would have been on your walls? Uh, well, Bobby Rydell was on my wall for a while. And he, the, in those days, you know, when I was a preteen, um, you could only get pictures out of movie magazines. Mm -hmm. There there were no teen magazines and, and magazines specifically for teenagers and relating to teen celebrities. Um, and... So there wasn't a lot of stuff, but but my number one fave was James Darren, because oh. I I had seen him in you know James Darren is played, that Gidget? No, yeah, he was in yeah. Gidget with uh, with uh, Sandra D, and he was Moon Doggy. So yes. of course you know he was the one that you would lust after, and he was he was just so cute, and I had his pictures on my wall, and. Okay, if you want to talk about serendipitous or almost serendipitous, this is another one. <laughs> okay, so the only – oh, I, I know um, I won a radio contest. I sent in – sometimes they used to have mail-in contests on the radio. And I, I got invited to Sandra D's movie, um, Tammy Tell Me True. Where that is Sid, so cool. Sandra D played Tammy, and that was the first Hollywood thing I ever did. And and James Darren wasn't in that. I I got off track. But anyway, it was a cool deal. I was probably fourteen, and my brother was sixteen. He drove me to it. You know, he wasn't real impressed, but <laughs> I thought it was really cool. But when I and then years later, I I didn't. I never had the opportunity to meet James Darren. But then I made I met my best friend of the last 50 plus years just about the time I was leaving Hollywood. She uh was a friend of one of the artists that had um, excuse me she was um engaged to one of the artists who had done some freelance work at Tiger Beat and that's how I met her. Uh, he had brought her over over to my house. And they were going to get married in a year, but I moved away to Northern California. So when I moved back, then we heard about their wedding and so on and so forth. And it turned out her mother's best friend was James Darren's wife. So he sang at her wedding. And I and I would have been invited to the wedding if I'd stayed in Southern California. Oh my it's a small rock and roll world after all. And is but that's that's one of my regrets that I didn't go to her wedding and get to hear James Darren sing what and I don't even know what song he sang for them but it was like oh that would have been so cool Aww. he was definitely <laughs> hunky he was a hunky he guy. was really cute and then and then the next and then I I I didn't really I wasn't a fave I mean Jan and Dean. I love their music. They were the first album I bought. So it was it was Jan and Dean's surf music that really got me, you know, buying records, uh, you know, after the Elvis days. It's like Elvis was, I think, fifth and sixth grade, and it was 
mad love and then it was over you know once he he came back from the army and he was making cheesy movies i wasn't an elvis fan then yeah he got pretty soft after he was in service yeah and you know i mean those movies they 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 were really only for diehard fans that would sit through those insipid scripts just so they could see elvis you know i mean i understand it but that wasn't me at that point in time, you know, when the British, yeah, the, the, when the British invasion hit, it, uh, you know, it took me right along with the wave. That's, that's for sure. But then, then I had my, you know, my rebirth as an Elvis fan with a comeback special. So we, I got to do it all over again, but that would be a few years down the road. Oh, amazing. Sometimes I wonder, um, you know, what our lives would be like, say, if we grew up in California or something. And I'm from a small town in northern Ontario, and Mm -hmm. it took me 45 minutes on the bus to get to high school. And, uh, yeah, it's, I, I felt like I had to, I had to work my way up to Toronto. <laughs> I fought to get here. <laughs> yeah, to the big city. <laughs> to the big city. I was, af- I was afraid of the subway system for the first year that I lived here. <laughs> Look at me now. <laughs> That's right. You're a woman about town, right? Yeah. Can we- uh, yeah. Growing up in Southern California was pretty awesome. And, and, you know, my dad thought he was honestly moving his family to the country because he moved us down to Anaheim from Compton. You know, he 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 had um, when he got back from the war, and I my I was born. Um, he and my mom got a little duplex in Compton, California, and I'm in the same Compton that you see in movies now, but it was a different little town then it was a place where they were building little tiny uh, you know uh, they were building housing for the returning vets and we lived in a little two-bedroom duplex that my parents rented and it was in a complex with other families and I mean it was very middle class or you know lower middle class and but it was just a nice little town, you know, near Long Beach. It was no big deal. Wow. But he, when he wanted to, to buy a, his first house, then he had to go, you know, further out from L.A., 30 whole minutes south mm-hmm. of L.A. at that point in time. And, um, and so he bought us a house in, in a little tract, uh, you know, veterans, $1 down, and the house cost $10,000, and... We had this nice little three-bedroom house with, you know, orange groves all around us. That so is crazy. It was great. But then uh, six months after we had moved into our house, you know, the headline in the Anaheim Bulletin was Walt Disney buys X number. I think <laughs> I think he only bought something like uh, 60 acres or something. I mean, he bought way too little land is, is the gist of it. But he did buy the land for Disneyland two miles from our house. So we got to watch it go up. I was so curious, like reading your book and you talk about you and your brother working there and you were both so young. Yeah. Now my brother, because he, I mean, he just kind of, along with the people who ran the stroller thing, they kind of concocted 
a job. I mean, he rode his bike down there looking for work, and and he met the people. uh, Because Main Street used to be, for the first 25 years of Disneyland, all the shops on Main Street leased the property from Disney. They weren't Disney-owned. So if you bought a watch from the watch shop, you were buying it from, you know, a, a business owner. And, and same thing with a, a, an orange juice at Sunkist. It was from, you know, a lessee that, that, uh, that leased that space. So my brother, they, you know, they had no way to really, they, they rented strollers. So they, they picked an amazing business to, to go into. Because you used to have to rent a stroller. I don't even know whether you do that today anymore. I think you bring your own. I don't know. But uh, he just went to those people and they said, well, you know, if if you took the newspapers and sold them out front rather than over here at our stroller stand, you know, we'd sell more newspapers. It, and well, they actually, yeah, because they were 10 cents. They were 10 cents at the time. And it just gave the activities of the day. They were printed by Disneyland. And like I said, his cohort in that was Steve. And, um, you know, they just became friends. And then when Disneyland asked them to sell their color guidebooks, which they came out with like a year or two later, and Jack was a couple of years older. Um, my mom made their costumes. So she made them each these striped um, jackets that were like 1890s. And, of course, we don't have a picture of it. But, I mean, doesn't that break your heart? I mean, pictures were not as simple to take back then, you know. And so people didn't do it like we do it. Yeah. A thousand times a Not day. Not as convenient as just holding oh. up your cell phone now. But that's exactly. actually like kind of crappy about things now. Like you can't – I feel like if you go backstage these days, it's actually kind of crappy rude. and rude yeah. if you pull out your cell phone and try and take a picture. Like it's not – unless you're a professional photographer and you have a yeah. real camera, it's yeah. almost like total opposite spectrum of that now. Because people are just so afraid that things are going to get posted on social media. And no control. Absolutely no control. But I, you know, anyway, I wish I had a picture of of my brother and Steve Martin in their little Disneyland coats. But uh, I haven't been able to find one. And yes, that's right, listeners. The Steve Martin. (laughs) That's the yes. one. If, you, if you're yeah. hearing he Steve lived, Martin and you're wondering, he, hmm, yes, that is the one. He just lived a few streets over from us, in, technically in Garden Grove, which was the next town over. We were right on that border. But but uh, he would always spend all his money at uh, at the magic shop. Was which he always a funny guy? Probably, I couldn't tell you. You know, I... I really have not asked my brother that question, and I will the next time I'm at his house in Southern California. I'll ask him if if he had any signs that, you know, did he make stupid jokes? You know, did he tell puns? Uh, I will. I will do my research, ladies. Thanks, Anne. Get back to us, please. Yeah, I will. I will get back with you. And then I was able to go to work early because. You could be 16 and go to work for one of the lessees. They could hire 16-year-olds, and you had to be 18 to work for Disneyland. 
So my brother went on when he turned 18. He became a street sweeper because the street sweepers were so well paid. I mean, I don't know how much they made an hour, but it was a really good wage. I mean, you'd think, oh, that's got to be the lowest job at Disneyland. And no, it's like every high school and college kid clamored to try mm. and to be a street sweeper, you know, or one of these. They made the same amount as the people loading you onto rides or anything like that. So um, Disney took so, care of his employees. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were well paid. I mean, we, we had a ton of teachers from the Anaheim area that, that would work during the summer months when they were off from school <laughs> to, you know, to fill out because the crowds were bigger in the summer. That's great. Yeah, and I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure today it's a, you know, it's definitely a year-round thing, but back then it was, you know, obviously bigger crowds in the summer. But the way I got in even earlier than 16, like at 15 and a half, was I I was dating this guy um, that I had met in my sophomore year. I I can't keep my ears straight. But anyway, I was dating this surfer, Surfer Joe, I'll call him, because <laughs> his name was Joe. And his dad was the manager at Sunkist. So he agreed to, to hire me on and just, you know, not make a big deal about what my age was because. And, and so I got to work at Sunkist, I presume, which was in Adventureland across the street from the Jungle Cruise ride when I was 15 and a half. And it was. It was a blast. It was just a great place to work. You had a strong work ethic ever since you were young, which brings us to our next question. So you, like, you've been working for so long, and then you did some uh, <laughs> your early work with Rhythm and News, and you mentioned in the book getting to cover people like James Brown, Wilson Pickett, mm-hmm. Tina Turner, Nina Simone, Sam Cooke, like incredible soulful artists. What yes. was it like meeting them and seeing them perform at such early stages in their career? Well, uh, certainly I got to see them in a way that you couldn't when they became the huge hits they were. Uh, for example, my first time seeing James Brown, um, the the rhythm and news people, you know, they're, they're, um, it was a mom and a daughter that started this little music newspaper that came out. That's in, amazing. In, yeah, in little music stores. And um, it was like four pages long at that point, And um, it cost five cents. And they wanted someone who was free. I think the girl, I, I, I think she was still in high school. But they wanted someone who could go up to the, because their emphasis w- was on rhythm and blues and soul music as opposed to, you know, teeny bopper music. I mean, that was that was their focus. So they wanted somebody who would go up to, to the clubs in South Los Angeles, and they said, you know, will you do that? And I said, sure. I mean, I, I have had people since say, really? You? You're, you're this little blonde, like, surfer chick, and you're, you're driving up? and you're 17 years old and you're driving up to these clubs in South Los Angeles. And it's like, yes, it was, it was a different time. And those clubs, I mean, the number one, the artists themselves 
treated me like gold. They treated me like I was doing them a favor because they were not getting media attention at all. They would they would have loved to have gotten more publicity and more notoriety, you know, to to broaden their careers. And it just wasn't happening yet because, you know, until Motown came along full bore and then everybody woke up to the fact that this is going to be a whole nother genre of music and it's amazing. They they just, you know, had a certain level of, of popularity. So I would go up there and, and I would say, you know, do you mind doing interview interview? And they'd go, No, come come sit down and they just and they just treated me so nice. It it just there was there was no uh, there was no race barrier in my mind at all, and That's and I, yeah, I I was never uncomfortable, uh, you know. And when I when I saw James Brown, what I was saying about seeing him in a way that you couldn't later on, I mean, these little clubs held like seventy five or a hundred people. They had little tables for cocktails, and you know it it isn't. It wasn't like an auditorium. It wasn't certainly like a stadium. And here you were. So you were, I don't know, 15 feet from the stage, 30 feet from the stage. And so that iconic person, it's like you're uh, just a matter of feet away from them. And and so you get a whole different uh, performance than you would by the time James Brown became huge and was, you know, appearing in concert halls, you know, 50,000. Yes. And then, and then I, and then I would see him many times. He played in a lot of clubs in Hollywood and I would, you know, people would say, can you get me into James Brown? It was like, absolutely. And literally I got kind of tired of the old, you know, cape routine at the end of his act where he'd <laughs> oh, yeah. keep coming back. And then, and then went to see Elvis do it in the early 70s. I mean, I was just going, woo, this is bizarre. <laughs> but, yeah, the never-ending encore. <laughs> but, but he was so awesome. There was nobody like him. And then the other time I was really blown away, too, was uh, the Dave Clark Five had come to town, and I had become – good friends with them. They would call me whenever they would come to town and we would see one another because they were the first group, you know, group from England that I ever interviewed. But one time they came to town and they said, Oh, little rich is, is appearing at this club. Can you get us in? And I said, well, I'll make some calls. So I made some calls. I, I got us in. I had never seen little Richard. I hadn't even thought about it because I, my head was filled with Herman's Hermits and <laughs> whoever else, you know, I was, you know, interviewing at the time. And, and I, you know, I wouldn't have gone on my own. And I swear that show just blew me away. Little Richard was so amazing. He he gave like a thousand percent to the performance. And again, it was in this little club and you're just a few feet away and he's banging on the piano and he's got that wild hair. It, it was just, you know, they were in heaven, the Dave Clark Five, and I was too because it was like, oh, thanks for, you know, making me do this. Yeah, I, imagining seeing all these artists in their prime in such a small venue, it's just a, a dream. It must have been magical. 
It really was. And then the the the, the times I would see uh, Ike and Tina Turner, and this was, of course, shortly before she left Ike, but whenever I would go to see Elvis, they were always playing in the uh, in the nightclub on the on the ground level at the International whenever Elvis was there. And so all you had to do is buy two drinks and sit there and watch Ike and Tina Turner for an entire show. Ugh. I mean, no admission, no nothing. And, I mean, it was all about Tina. She was... You know, it was her and her backup girls and uh, what the Iquettes. And she was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then to read her her biography, her autobiography, and find out that when I was watching her on stage, she was covering up bruises with makeup and all. And it's like, oh, my God, I you know, I didn't have any idea. Yeah, they really uh, put out – they really put out – um, an image that yeah. certainly wasn't anything like what was happening behind the scenes. That's for sure. Yeah. And the fact that she would come from something like, like that and put on the shows she did. I mean, she was as, as spectacular then as she is now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, she, she, she's a very remarkable woman and, uh, I, I would give anything to see her now though. I mean, oh, yeah. wow. She's still got it. Oh, man, yes. <laughs> Does she ever. Uh, and speaking of connections that you made, you were sort of the go-to girl for any visiting artists. I know that there's this really fun photo of you with um, a couple of the monkeys and a very young-looking Jimmy Page. And, <laughs> yes. Um, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about those connections. It seems like many visitors had a fascination with the monkeys and wanted to meet them. They did. Uh, you know, the, for example, Jimmy Page, um, he had come to town with the Yardbirds. They were appearing. And um, by that time, I was doing a monthly column kind of as a moonlighting job uh, for the New Musical Express over in the UK. Mm-hmm. And they were a music newspaper that came out every Friday. And I don't even know how many pages, probably, I don't know, 16 pages or something. And um, all the music news, the the big music journalists over there, and then I wrote an America Calling column so that whenever artists would come over from the UK, not only would they want what they were doing in Hollywood reported back, so Mm -hmm. they would kind of get in touch with me to say, well, you know, do you want to come interview us or, you know, are you going to come see our show, What you know, whatever. And then, as you say... They were so fascinated when the monkeys became so popular. It was like, we want to meet these guys. Mm -hmm. Because so much controversy in the music world surrounded them. Oh, they don't play their instruments. Oh, they don't do this. They don't do that. And they did. And and so the, the, the serious artists still wanted, they wanted to go out and meet them and see what this was all about. And they were, you know, they were all just about the same age. So it was just like, hey, let's go see these guys. And so that's, I would take him out to the set. I took Dave Clark out. Um, uh, Can't remember some of the others. You know, I'd have to look back through my magazines to remember them. But 
they were they were you know and then that was a big thrill for them as well mm-hmm. somebody like jimmy page coming to meet them it was like a mutual admiration society so it was it was always always fun that's that's so interesting and you got to kind of live this life where like we did an interview with a young girl in California who's like a social media influencer and goes to all of the shows at all of the you know places that were I guess hip and cool like still back in the uh, 70s and 80s and it's her kind of mm-hmm. dream to hang out with bands and write articles about them and a lot of people you know and the millennials like we we're saying like they make reference to that Penny Lane character of like following the bands along and <laughs> and being amused to them and things like that and you actually did that that was your life and you really got to bring these stories to the young fans who wanted to be you and do what you were doing I did <laughs> now there was no Instagram or Snapchat back then no. So they learned about their favorites, you know, the favorite color and, you know, all those little things and what are you up to and all of the little quirky insider knowledge um, through you. And I remember being little and lying on my bed and thinking about my favorite musician and wondering, and okay, it was Nick Carter from the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> it's okay. embarrassing, but that's who I had. I'm- okay. <laughs> No, all is fair in in teeny bopper land. Thank you, thank you, Anne. Absolutely, come on. I yeah, like I didn't have Elvis. Okay, <laughs> like I didn't. I didn't have the Beatles. They they fed me the BSB, and I took a big spoonful. But I was lying on my bed, and I would wonder. I wonder what Nick Carter's doing right now, mm-hmm. and now. Um, young fans can hop on Snapchat and they can hop on Instagram and they have their answer. They can find out exactly what their musician is doing right now. Do you think that that takes some of the magic out of this kind of uh, fantasy music experience, musical experience? Or do you think that, oh yeah, or... Is it better? <laughs> I don't know. Obviously, I'm biased. So for me, I'm like, I don't want to be seeing them as real people almost in a way. Yeah. You know, like, um, I liked the mystery of it. I don't know, Anne. What do you think? Well, uh, I'm sure that it's really hard for them to have secrets. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And in my day, it, it was easy for them to have secrets. Um, now... <laughs> I don't know how I feel about it, like one's better than the other, because, you know, what we have is what we know, I, and and it, it just seemed like the most exciting thing in the whole world from what they have, you know, fans of Tiger Beat have written me, they, they literally... You know, they'd meet their best friend and they'd go down to the the drugstore on the day that Tiger Beat was going to come out. And then they'd sit and read read them all the way through in the drugstore before they'd even go home. And it it was just it it was a whole nother experience. Um, it, It it's almost like you can't compare it to what it's like today. I mean, do they find out too much about the person? 
I don't know. I think they're, they, it, it's possible to get sort of oversaturated, uh, in today where like if an artist is posting photos and videos, like multiple ones a day, sometimes that can go against them in a way where you're like, it's it's too much now, you know? Instant gratification, refresh, refresh. Oh, it is. And, and that that's available. It's, it's just, it's a whole nother world. And, you know, I can't say it's good or bad or anything in between. It, it just is what it is. That's what our world is like right now. Yeah, it's just another um, way that the internet and social media has changed and affected and shifted the way we consume and see music. And some of it is good and some of it is just, is what I think is what we miss about what we never had. Yeah. That's really yeah. I, and, and, you know, I, I, I don't know what would, if I were an 18 year old today and I, and I wanted to go out and be involved with something, it's like, where would my efforts go? I mean, I don't know. They're just, there's, there's so many paths today Maybe you'd be a podcaster. Maybe I would, except up until recently, microphones have really scared me to death. I mean, one of my one of my blog posts is about my favorite side of the camera, and my favorite side of the camera is not the side with the lens. But you're so cute. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? What kind of changed my mind was somebody sent me an old. They sent me a DVD of the old um, Happening 68 and Happening 69. There were several episodes. That was a a series of TV programs that Dick Clark produced. Uh, Paul Revere of Paul Revere and the Raiders and Mark Lindsay, the lead singer of Paul Revere and the Raiders, were were the show's hosts. And every week, some they would do a funny skit or the Raiders would but then it was the battle of the bands and they had two funky bands and the bands won like a a speaker and a station wagon you know because these were like little garage bands but they would get to be on national tv and then and then the show had like three judges so one of the times I went on John Provost was a judge with me and I was a judge, and um, can't remember the other one. Another time, Sally Field was a judge. They would, so they would have guest judges. So the time I was a guest judge, you know, they introduced me and brought me out. Well, you know, for years, I wondered. I, you know, I thought, oh, I must have done terrible because I very vividly remember being totally sick to my stomach having to go out Aww. and do that. I mean, you know, I was just not cut out to be on a stage. I didn't sign up for the school plays in high school. You know, I was the yearbook editor, you know, just in my little my little room doing my thing. So, but then, I mean, it was like three years ago, somebody sent me a DVD from 69, and lo and behold, it has me coming out, and if you you probably haven't seen my book trailer, it's it's on YouTube. You can look up my book trailer, but it shows me coming me me coming out and Mark Lindsay introducing me. And although there's just a short clip on there, I got, I got to see the whole clip 
And actually, he says, so what's going on at Tiger Beat? And I say, oh, it's so great. You know, we're having a Flight of Hollywood contest, and you get to spend a week with Bobby Sherman. And Mark Lindsay goes, oh, that's great. And I said, oh, and they get to come to Happening 68 and meet you. And he's, you know. And I didn't didn't do that badly. It's never as bad as you imagine it's going to be. It held a little bit of time and perspective and distance. It wasn't as bad. But, you know, your memory plays tricks on you. You know, you know it was traumatic for you doing it. So you figure it was bad. But hey, it wasn't that bad. So it was like that was a a revelation. Uh, It was the same thing when I was starting to write the book. It was like, well, surely over the years I have embellished the story of meeting Morris Gibb and our love affair. You know, I mean, it's only natural that you would think you were more in love or think that it was a bigger deal than it actually was, you know? I mean, so many of the things from childhood that you thought were, oh, this was the greatest thing. It was like, eh, it was just this this or that. But then two years into the book, my mom sent me two or three boxes of old family photos and letters my dad had written her from the war And in there were all the letters I had written my parents in longhand, you know, from my trip to London to to stay with the Gibb family. And it was like the letters proved I remembered it accurately. It was like, oh, oh my goodness. And that's why I printed some of them in my book because it was like, look, this this was written in 1967, you know. (laughs) So it's the real deal. And and so it was it was kind of a validation that, hey, you know, it at the time we thought we were in love. So that's that was good to find out that I hadn't, you know, blown it out of proportion what it really was. So you had said that, you know, you like you were in the yearbook office. You like to be on the other end of the camera lens. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you're obviously because you're a journalist, you're a writer and, you know, back then, you know, still articulate, intelligent. And then also, you know, that California surfo girl look. Do you think that the artists, you know, like the monkeys and the who and Elvis, do you think that they really warmed up to you and felt comfortable with you because you had this kind of unassuming atel intelligence that you weren't maybe after the, the maybe a spotlight, but that like they felt comfortable and were open to you because of that personality trait and character trait that you had? Uh I hadn't really thought about it before, but I would say yes, and the fact that we were so close in age. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's, I, always, I always felt like they looked at me like a peer, not that I was a talented artist like they were, but just a peer. We were the same age. Almost everybody that became a superstar had a fairly average life before they were a superstar. You know, I mean, well, maybe not Davy Jones. You know, he was on Broadway. Not Mickey. He was he was circus boy. <laughs> but, but certainly the musicians like, you know, Eric Clapton or Jimmy Page, these were just 
you know, young men who, who grew up and said, let's play guitars in our garage. And, you know, then they're this, you know, world's greatest guitarist. Um, so and and they were most of them were just as unassuming as I was. In other words, they weren't full of themselves. They weren't they and I can remember Eric Clapton very clearly when when I went out to dinner with he and Jeannie the Taylor he was so shy and even more shy than some of the British boys would like Herman's Hermits they all had a fabulous sense of humor and they joked and they teased and and they were just teenage boys you know and and the same age as me but like Eric was was so shy that he stood out from some of the others because he wasn't making jokes and you know the the center of attention all the time and and then when i read his autobiotic biography recently i mean he starts out by saying boy i was really shy and i was really afraid to play my music up on the stage and and i went oh yeah i knew you then <laughs> Because that it's just how it was. So it, I, I I don't know what it would be like today. I mean, how you would how would how would you set yourself apart from? It's like everybody's glamorous today. <laughs> uh, and you saw really like all levels of fame. Uh, we know you didn't search for that yourself. You were behind the camera, behind the article type of person uh did you realize mm -hmm. like the value in anonymity even then uh and what did you think of like the fame the levels of fame these guys were getting so quickly were you able to like like realize it at the time or is it more you know in perspective that you realize like how crazy it was for them was there ever moments where you thought hmm i might like my name like i might i i might like fame like that or the the thing that I came to feel about most of the artists that, that I worked with is that they had a different gene than I did. Most of them had something inside them that made them want to be famous. I never had that that goal. I, I, I never wanted my name to be known i didn't want to you know i didn't want people asking to take my picture or you know tracking me down to my house you know i saw what it did to people and while you know the monkeys certainly when they were in hollywood they had as much privacy as they wanted or didn't want depending on on their situation and but by the time david cassidy came along he really gave up his entire life to being a teen idol. I mean, he, he never had a moment. It's just because everything was bigger by then. You know, they, the, the television studios had caught on to the fact that, that they made the most money when they had not only a show that was on with a teen idol every week on, you know, in the family hour, but that teen idol was producing music and they were, you know, churning out lunch boxes and scarves and love beads and, and everything else. And, and they were, they just turned them into money-making machines, but 
the teen idols themselves just got swept up in it and and really none of them had a life with maybe the exception of uh, the ones that I knew I, is what I'm talking about now not you know ever since <laughs> but but just the ones I came into contact with Bobby Sherman was the most grounded but he was like about 3 years older than than most of the teen idols he came from a, a lovely family in the San Fernando Valley. Uh, both mom and dad, you know, mom was a stay-at-home mom. His his dad helped him build a recording studio in their house. I mean, they were a very close family. And so he had that familial support throughout his whole life. And so, and it didn't change when he became a big star. You know, he still included them in things he was doing, and and he he just managed to stay very very grounded. But you know, the monkeys they kind of went crazy and all threw away their money. Uh, you know, the money that they had, and and um, uh, then then by the time David Cassidy came along, poor David, and I say poor David in in regard that he did not have that support system that Bobby Sherman had. And it really took over his life, and and they really turned him in just to a money making machine, and Oof. you know, at, at and it you know it led to a fairly unhappy life, you know, that he could never seem to get out of that mold in in the you know in later years in his life. I, I, it was, was very sad. My mom, that's her guy. Cassidy? Yeah, yeah, it's David Cassidy. She was I knew I knew for for a while, and I love that picture of the two of you sitting on that bench. You just both look so gorgeous. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, there, tell your mom there's a, a documentary coming out on David Cassidy that uh, that I participated in, oh, yeah. and um, and that was prior to his his death last November. Uh, so it should be coming out any time now. We it's, will watch it together. Yeah, wow, I really I'll, look forward I'll, to that. I'll, let, I'll give you a heads up as soon as I know when it's coming out because they'll they'll let me know and uh, and I think it's gonna be, it and it it was intended to uh, you know take you through you know he, he had announced he had dementia and it was gonna take you through him recording his last album and how much of that they got on film before his you know, untimely death. Um, I don't know, but, um, but they, they, because they had enough, uh, to, to complete the documentary, you know, it's, it's going to be a real tribute to him. So, um, it'll be, I'll, I'll, I'll spread the word as soon as I know. Fabulous. Yeah, this whole idea of fame is such a strange thing because I read uh, this thing the other day. It's by a doctor and it's the 36 questions that you can ask, like couples can ask each other um, mm -hmm. in order to become closer. And so I went through the 36 questions mm -hmm. and one of them is asking your partner, do you want to be famous or would you ever want to be famous? And if so, for what? And I work with children and it's more, uh, it's uncommon, it's more uncommon when kids don't have a YouTube channel. They all have YouTube channels now. Yeah. Yeah. And one of, uh, one of my students wow. attracted me to their YouTube channel 
And one of the things they said was like, okay, so subscribe my page because um, I want more subscribers. And it's like, you have a great message, but you're you're saying that you just want more subscribers. So it's just, yeah, yeah it's, I mean, that's the way that, that people are going. It's, but um, I'm, I'm trying to, to teach the groundedness part of it because that is yeah. so, so, so important. It's just to keep those feet and those roots on the ground. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. 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 And you can, you know, you can have success and you can have fame. And, you know, the people that, that I think I most admire are the people that are famous and then they do good things to, to share either their, their, their good fortune or their talents. You know, if, as long as they, you know, pay it forward, pass it along, you know, use your talents for something other than just being the richest person on the planet. You know, I, 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 I can't, I, no, I'd go off on a rant if I went on that. <laughs> I just have a thing about these, these billionaires that never seem to have enough. It's like, when is enough enough? So, but, um, yeah, I, I do love it when, when, people that have made a name and then they use it just for good, good people who do good things with their money. So we like to talk a lot do. about and, that. Yeah. And their and their and their talents. I mean like Lynn Manuel Miranda, the things he's doing, I just just blow me away. Yeah, we love kind of figuring out what charities you know people are associated with and mm-hmm. yeah oh I have, we have something kind of funny to tell you so okay. our friend Jacqueline who is a part of our writing workshop um, we do kind of girls writing workshops together she runs a website called I love Mickey Dolans.com and she has <laughs> his signature tattooed on her and she's what in her early 30s yeah and so and and she is like in contact with his manager and is running some event when he comes to Toronto. Like, did you ever have any idea that the monkeys or Mickey, you know, how many years later now would be, would, would still have these young fans that are like obsessed, obsessed, obsessed. obsessed, obsessed. Yeah. obsessed. No, <laughs> I never imagined. Right. How could well, you? I never imagined that, that even the baby boomers would be, you know, filling up stadiums to see, you know, their faves from the 60s and 70s. But we are. And um, and I think it I think it's so cool. Um, and, but the the young ones, I don't know, like you say, there's so much to choose from out there. And and maybe it's this generation's time to be quirky by liking something from back in the day as opposed to the, you know, hundredth boy band that comes along mm-hmm. or or the the hundredth, you know, Bieber. I it's guess like, we have more variety too now because we do have, you know, decades to search back through to find what resonates with us. Yeah. Yeah. And whereas we we were not so hot to to you know to listen to Frank Sinatra that our parents loved or um you know although I I did would listen a lot to to Broadway musicals mm-hmm. that that um they had records of cuz I loved that but 
No, I mean we had cool music, and it's the. Uh, I I know when my my sons were in high school, uh, my older son would make me. He he'd go. He'd make mom's groovy mixtape, and <laughs> it would it would have all this funny stuff on it. But then one time I drove from one. I I went with him on all his college visits, and 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 he'd bring CDs along, and it would be like. You have Michael Jackson on a CD, you know. This was like in in two thousand, mm-hmm. and he goes, "Well, yeah." And then he'd have somebody else, and I'd go, "Okay, you can play this and this and this, this and this, but I don't want to listen to." And I'd give him the list of ones I didn't want to listen to. You know, the I w- I was not into rap, and um, but he had enough that he had chosen that he liked of the oldies, mm-hmm. and it was like, oh my god, and. Certainly, you know, the Beatles have fans of every age. Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, you know, to, to find that, that your friend is, is a Mickey maniac, um, I guess it's not as surprising. <laughs> it's so cool. Think. She's like, she's <laughs> so devoted. It's great. She's She came on our show and we did an episode on Mickey and Samantha. So, uh, <gasps> yeah, she got to like share her love of Mickey on uh, on Muses and it was lovely oh that that is so nice yeah um i was curious at tiger beat was there one person that got like an overwhelming amount of fan mail and were there people that you maybe couldn't understand like why they were continually growing more popular uh but the fans really love them or that you were really excited for that the fans just never really took a hold of that was a three-in-one. Um, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I know. I mean, um, okay. There certainly there were certain faves that that. I mean, it was always our covers were based on who we thought would be most popular, and then because we, you know, we had to take a chance at some point. Before they were stars, we wanted to establish that we were the ones that were covering them. Mm-hmm. So it's like sometimes it was taking a gamble. It was, okay, we're going to put so-and-so on the cover, um, you know, Donnie Osmond, and and we hope that works. But, you know, it's like they didn't, they didn't have a TV show. Mm-hmm. They were just the Osmonds, and they were performing, and they were, you know, fabulous you know, one of the best shows I've ever seen because they were natural singers and dancers. I mean, they could move, they could move like the Jackson five and, and they were white and, and, uh, and, you know, and white people couldn't dance as well usually as black people. So, (laughs) So it was like, but they, they really had it. They, they really, uh, so, but we, you know, we didn't know because they didn't have that TV show audience backing them up. And, but then we'd put them on the cover and then Donnie's fan mail would go through the roof and it would be like, yep, that was, that we called that one. And then, so it was always, uh, sometimes we'd lead, sometimes, sometimes we'd follow, but, um, to answer the one of the questions in there that was, did you ever get mail that you went, what, should we check into this person or who is this? And it was like, no, I mean, we we didn't. I mean, we may have, but it never came to my attention. You guys had your finger on the pulse and 
We we did, and and in in our own way, we were creating it as well. I mean, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. I mean, my publisher Chuck Lawfer, he was determined to make stars out of the DeFrancos, who were a group of uh, uh, it was a group that he had gotten together. They were family members, and they never were stars. And then there were the Flying Cavarettas. He had gone to Circus Circus in Vegas because he went to Vegas a lot. Um, this is our publisher, and he was older. He was probably in his, um, I, I don't know, maybe 40s then. And he saw this family that was a trapeze act. And they had several girls, you know, who, you know, it was, it was an interesting family, but, you know, they, they weren't gorgeous. And... Um, the boys weren't that good looking, and but he he said I'm going to make teen idols out of them. So I would assign those stories to the assistants because I didn't. It was like, come on, this is you know you can't force feed the public, and that's how it turned out. They they yeah, were not sure. they were not willing to be force fed, and these these people, the flying cabaretters, really couldn't sing that well, and. It was kind of the same with the cow sills. I mean, the cow sills, they made great records, but those boys were not teen idol material unless they, you know, went through a set of braces, which they never did. They had that one Uh, big hit. Yeah. Well, they they had several, of course. They had hair, and they had the rain in the park and other things, and they had... um, Oh, the one about uh, the park. Uh, anyway, anyway, you know, they had several nice top ten hits. They played a lot of concerts, uh, but they just, they didn't become teen idols because they didn't have the look. And um, it, it just, being a teen idol material meant you had to, you know, have sure. have a, have a look that the that the all the teenage girls you know went for and and the the one thing i found out since writing the book certainly not back in the tiger beat days are we had a ton of young males who also read the magazine i was just thinking that yeah and we did not realize it at the time you know maybe they weren't letter writers I, I don't know. I don't know why we weren't aware of how many uh, boys and young young males were reading the magazine. But boy, I've heard about it since then, and uh, I, I wish we had known. Mm-hmm. I mean, in today's world, you'd know, you know, five minutes after your edition came out, you know, what your demographic was of who who it went out to. But <laughs> not back then. Yeah. Exactly. So um, we could probably talk your ear off for hours, but we won't do that. But this has been so, so, so amazing. We have a couple more questions left. And Wonderful. we, yeah, this has just been so amazing. And we could, we have so many more for you. So maybe some other day we can hook up again, maybe in person. Absolutely. We've just scratched the surface. We, I think we have, but <laughs> we cannot um, finish our chat today without asking you about Elvis. So one thing Lynx and I were like, well, what should we ask her about? What, what, what should Elvis? What, uh? And both of the, both of us kind of, kind of said, 
I wonder what he smelled like. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well. Do you smell good? <laughs> yes, he did. Yeah, yes, he did indeed. Um, he was very clean. Um, the time I got to kiss him was the time I was closest to him. Oh. And, and, you know. <laughs> Now, come on, that that was with an audience of 2,000 people because it 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 was semi-staged in that uh, when I um, when Dennis Sanders, uh, the director of Elvis, that's the way it is, which was the documentary on him getting ready for the Vegas show in the in 71, I believe, uh, either 70 or 71. Um. They filmed him getting ready, but the the documentary also included interviews, and they I was one of the people that they chose to interview as an Elvis fan because I was the editor of the magazine. Some of the others were these two girls that named their their cats after Elvis, and <laughs> and then and then another one was a, a daughter and 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 an elderly mother who both loved Elvis. And and the daughter, you know, she, I can remember when they interviewed her. She says, "Well, he really sets my Phi Beta Kappa Kia jangling." <laughs> and you know, a lot of people won't understand that that reference, but it's like when you used to be the smartest in your college or whatever, you got a Phi Beta Kappa key, and uh, it's kind of like being valid, valedictorian, I think. And and so here she was, this very studious woman. And and then her mom said, "I like it best when they when they don't cut him off at the waist. I like to see <laughs> see him him wiggle his hips." Don't we all and, and so that whole thing. So as part of that, they filmed me and my guests going to our our front row seats at the show, and then they taped part of one of the shows, and they taped. Um, the part, or filmed, I should say. This was MGM 35mm movie film. And uh, so they filmed, so uh, on the ones that were being filmed for the documentary, of course Elvis knew about it, and he knew that on that night, instead of just going around the stage, because whenever he sang, um, uh, was it, it, no, he finished with Can't Help Falling in Love. I can't remember the song he he sang. But whenever he'd sing this one love song, um, he would go along the stage and kiss all the girls that would walk up. And, of course, because I was sitting in the front row, I was the first one he kissed on that night. Amazing. And it, wa- it was amazing because because I was the first. So, you know, they were they were virgin lips. And nobody else's perfume and it wasn't just a peck it was a real oh. kiss and you know no tongue but but a real lovely kiss and then you know i thought oh you probably it was probably better you know you probably made it better than it really was but then as a thank you, because because I had worked closely with, with the director while he made the movie and did a lot of promo on it and stuff, he had made a film just to, for me and my friends. 
because he had come to an Elvis party that I had told him about. I we had a, I had a group of friends who got together every few months, and all the guys would, you know, drink, and once they were drunk, they would sing Elvis songs and they'd perform like Elvis, you know. And they were, you know, these were just normal people, and um. And so he said, oh, I've got to get this on film. And I said, well, everybody be too nervous. And he says, oh, no, it's no big deal. We'll just have one little camera. You won't even know we're there. And I went, well, okay. And I told everybody at the party, okay, MGM's coming, but we won't even know they're there. So we pull up outside my friend's house in um, Redondo Beach. And outside his house is this generator the size of a car. And then upstairs in his apartment, there is a full-on 35-millimeter movie camera on a tripod. You know, there were no little little handheld video cameras or anything. So, I mean, he completely BSed me. And everybody was so nervous. And none of the guys would relax. And finally, with a little help from alcohol and, and, uh, you know, and weed... They finally relaxed. He got a bunch of, you know, fun shots of everybody, you know, the women would all, you know, move and as the guys would act like Elvis. And it was really funny. And um, so he invited us to a screening at MGM and he showed, you know, me the, the, the footage that he shot of me kissing Elvis and then the, the shots of our party and all of those things ended up on the cutting room floor, the kiss and the party. But we got to see them on the big screen at MGM. So amazing. We you know, if I had just those. said, can I just have that film since you're not going to use it in the, in the thing? Because, I mean, it was 35 millimeter film. I mean, every frame would have been awesome. Uh. Beautiful. Especially the kiss frame. Especially. Yes. Oh, my have goodness. That framed. I know. So... That was, that's, that, um, so Elvis smelled really nice. And then when I got to stand close to him, when I met him on the set of Change of Habit, he also smelled very nice. I don't, I don't remember him smelling of a cologne. He just was clean and, I don't know, Elvis was so manly. I guess you'd you'd say he just had a clean, manly smell. Uh, Just, I'm picturing it now. Let's just all take a moment. <laughs> I think we're like literally swooning here. Yeah, we are. And this is yeah. Maybe I can make an announcement on your show. Yeah. yeah. I have been invited to be a guest speaker at Elvis Week <gasps> in August at Graceland this Amazing! year. <laughs> that so, is so exciting. For all the Elvis fans out there. I'm as excited as they are about Elvis Week. Oh, uh, my God. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. I am so excited because I have not been to Graceland. And um, I so they have promised me a tour. And then I'm going to be speaking. And they've asked me to sign autographs. So if anybody wants my autograph, I'll be there. Yes. But I, Oh, but what? Do you to- know the date yet? I don't. Uh, I do. Um, I'll have to email it to you. Okay, because I think it's. I think the dates are up. Just, just, uh, just Google, we'll Google Elvis it. Week 
2018, and it gives you the dates. Links and, and I are and they're uh, <laughs> so <yeah>. excited. <laughs> Links and I are going to well, be in in Tennessee tr- in August. Please, please, really, please, <laughs> the Elvis gods make it the same week. <laughs> well, I think I think it's like the 17th or something like that. We oh, could make that work. Maybe. Okay. Oh man, oh. that would be so cool to come. Well, we, we will talk, ladies, because. Um, it's uh, it's like they're um, anyway. We We're will going talk to a podcast festival in in Nashville, um, August twenty fifth. So we'll yeah yeah. You'll have to just go down a little bit early. Yeah. Oh, that's so early. cool. That, that's a must. You well, know what? An amazing way to finish. What a great <laughs> way to end. We just want to thank you so much for this chat. It means so much to us. Your book means so much. Just the way that you spoke, you know, on, on like so openly, so honestly, you know, just you're, you're a real trailblazer and we just really look up to you and we really admire you and just want to thank you so much. Yeah, this has well, been incredible. Thank you for your kind words. Oh. I, that that just that just melts my heart and I I appreciate it so much, you know. I I always try to just do my best cuz that's how I was raised. But in the process, when you when you do that, when you do your best, it's like you're doing it for the people that are reading it. You're not doing it to have somebody say Boy, you know how to use big words. You're, you're you're doing it because you're you're trying to communicate the neat things that are happening to you. So if I accomplish that, that that is that really makes my day. You definitely did, and thank <laughs> you so much. And please come back on. We'd love to chat with you again. We sure would. Let's, let's do it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Hopefully in and August. we will be Hopefully in person. touch about Elvis Week. Yes. Can't wait. Thank you so it's much, Anne. Thank you both. Lovely to talk to you. So lovely to talk to you. Hello, friends. This is Mark Nell, executive producer of the Table Read podcast, where imagination meets performance. As we wrap up an incredible season one, we want to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you who tuned in and supported us on this amazing journey. Season one was nothing short of extraordinary. We delved into captivating scripts that transported us to worlds beyond our imagination, thanks to the brilliant writers who delivered these works. But what really brought these stories to life were the talents of our amazing actors. But Wait, the excitement doesn't end there. As we bid farewell to Season 1, we are thrilled to announce the launch of Season 2. Get ready for more gripping narratives, more unforgettable characters, and more mesmerizing performances that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We have some big surprises coming. The Force will definitely be with you. So stay tuned, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay excited. From all of us at the Table Read Podcast, thank you. And let's make Season 2 even more memorable together.